Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we are mindful this morning, as we've already sung, of your grace, the grace that has sought after us and rescued us, the grace that sent your Son to the cross to atone for our sins and to give us life. Lord, we're also mindful that our hearts are prone to wander, and so we ask you to work your grace today in our hearts once again to lift our eyes off of ourselves and off of the world and to put our eyes squarely on our master, Jesus Christ, that we might follow him and take up our cross, believing that it is worth it, that losing everything in this world, repenting of our sin, giving up those things we hold so dearly, none of that compares to the glory of knowing Christ. So Father, fix our eyes on Jesus this morning. Speak to us. Minister your grace to us that we might follow our Savior. Amen. Please open to Luke chapter 6 again today. Luke chapter 6. There is, um, in Scripture, a lot of different metaphors that the Bible uses, different word pictures, different analogies that help us to understand spiritual truths. And one of the most common metaphors we find, one that is found frequently to describe our spiritual condition is the metaphor of seeing, this idea of what it means to really see. Having spiritual understanding is seeing. Grasping the truth is seeing. And on the flip side, we find as we read through the Bible that blindness, on the other hand, is often a metaphor for ignorance. Blindness describes foolishness. Blindness describes even unbelief. So a key question, whether we're reading from Isaiah or from the Gospels, is always this, do you see? Can you understand? Or are you in the dark? Are you blind? Are you oblivious and unaware of how things really are? It matters that we see, and it matters how we see. And Jesus, in Luke chapter 6, as he preaches this Sermon on the Plain, makes clear that faithfully following Jesus requires that we see rightly. If you're a note taker, that's the big point this morning. Faithfully following Jesus requires that we see rightly. And Jesus gives us two very important admonitions in his sermon that have to do with seeing. He gives us first a caution, a warning, if you would. And then secondly, he gives us a correction to instruct his followers, to make sure that we understand the importance of seeing others and seeing ourselves rightly. Let's look at the first admonition in verses 39 through 40. This is in the middle of his sermon. We're jumping in, and it says that he also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. The caution that Jesus gives us is this. Beware of the spiritual condition of those that you follow. We have to be aware of this crucial issue of spiritual blindness in the people that have influence on us. Beware of the spiritual blindness in those that you follow. Just to remind us of the context, right before this, Jesus has commanded us to love. He has commanded us to forgive. And as we saw last week, he commands us not to judge and not to condemn. 
But refusing to judge, Jesus is quick to clarify, does not absolve us of the responsibility to be discerning. If you weren't with us last week, you can go back and and listen as we tried to clarify what it does mean and what it doesn't mean to judge not and condemn not. But right here in the next breath, Jesus makes clear, lest we think that not judging means we're supposed to put our head in the sand and that we're supposed to be spiritually naive, Jesus gives us this cautionary parable about the blind man leading a blind man. And Jesus' point is that there are people out there whose teaching you should not trust, whose example you should not follow. Jesus often uses parables, these these illustrations to teach us a spiritual truth. And a parable, parable can be anything from a simple word picture, like we have here, a proverbial statement, to a full-blown story, a narrative with characters and a setting and a crisis and a resolution. And he often uses these parables because they're useful to teach us these spiritual lessons. And they serve to drive home a point. And this parable says he told them, verse 39, a parable. This parable comes in the form of a rhetorical question. Jesus asks, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? The answer should be, obvious. A blind person obviously needs a guide. Because they cannot see, they need someone else to show them where to go, to tell them to watch their step, to tell them to change direction. But a blind person obviously does not make a good guide because they need someone to guide them. Again, this is common sense. And Jesus says it's not just that a blind man can't get another blind man to the right destination. I mean, that's obviously true. But even worse, he says both of them are going to end up crashing and burning along the way. He says, will they not both fall into a pit? The pit that Jesus refers to is a lot more serious than just a little ditch on the side of the road. In Jesus' day, water in this region was a precious commodity. Water was valuable. And so it was very common for people as a matter of survival to dig for water. They would both search for water, try to build wells. You can read about this in the Old Testament. You see there's important scenes that happen around wells in the New Testament also. But they would also dig other pits, not necessarily to drill for water and and try to find it. Sometimes they would just dig a pit to store water. It would be a cistern that they would funnel rainwater into and, and save it up for later. So Because the people did this all the time, the the land was pockmarked with these pits, deep pits. You would have found these pits in residential areas. You would have found these pits in rural farmland areas. You would have found wells and pits and cisterns at rest stops along the road. It was all over the place. If you remember in the book of Genesis, Joseph was thrown into a pit, and he was held there against his will before he was sold into slavery. This is not just a little two-foot ditch on the side of the road. The prophet Jeremiah was once thrown into an empty well, and he sunk into the mud at the bottom. They had to get rags under his armpits and a rope to haul him out of there. So as you can imagine, falling into a pit, that could really hurt you, if not kill you. I was reminded this week, I don't know if you've ever seen this in real life, or maybe you've seen a video, but have you ever seen the people that are looking at their phone and they're walking along the sidewalk, and they step right into like a construction hole or an open man cover? You don't want to do that. That's really bad for your health. You can get seriously injured if not killed. And we're not even blind. We just stare at our phones. But Jesus makes the point, if a blind man leads a blind man, they're both going to fall into a pit. 
The point is self-evident. We need to beware of spiritual blindness in others, lest we come to share in their stumbling. Lest we come to share in the destruction and the disaster that they are going into headlong. Anyone whose guidance points us away from Christ. Anyone whose influence points us away from his word. Anyone who would guide us into a kind of living that does not please the Lord, anyone who would steer us away from repentance and faith, such guidance can only result in disaster. But here's the problem. No one really thinks of themselves as blind. It's not always easy because no one advertises, I'm a blind guide, don't trust me. On the flip side, there's a lot of self-proclaimed experts out there. There's a lot of self-appointed leaders who are marketing on their podcast and building their YouTube channel and selling their books and building their movements and all those sorts of things. There's a lot of people with impressive gifts and even impressive credentials, but this does not mean that they are trustworthy guides. In the Old Testament, there came a point where Israel's leaders, those who should have been good guides, were so spiritually lacking that they were called blind. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 16, It says, those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Chapter 56, it says, his watchmen, those are supposed to be the watchmen for the nation, his watchmen are blind. They are all without knowledge. They are all silent dogs. They cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. Imagine your house getting robbed while your guard dog is just asleep on the porch. He's not doing his job. This is an imagery for the leaders of Israel. They're blind guides. They're slumbering dogs who cannot bark. They're without knowledge. And because of that, the people of Israel walked headlong into spiritual disaster, idolatry, captivity. They were taken out of the land. In Jesus' day, the Pharisees came to fit this description. Another instance, in Jesus' ministry, Matthew chapter 15 Verse 12, it says, the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard your sayings? Jesus answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Leave them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Jesus uses this same word picture, this same metaphor, and pins it directly on the Pharisees. He says, those religious leaders are blind guides, and whoever follows them is going to fall into a pit just like them. And likewise today, Old Testament, New Testament, and even in our age, there are some who profess to be wise. There are some who may even be in positions of influence and notoriety and leadership, but they are nevertheless blind. This is a word of caution. And Jesus presses the point home even further in verse 40. He says, a disciple is not above his teacher, But everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. This is a fairly flexible statement. It could mean something very positive, but it can also mean something very negative. If you follow blind guides, you are going to become like them. If you follow men that are led by their pride and by their flesh, you are going to be someone who is ruled by your pride and by your flesh. If you follow and are influenced by people who embrace the world's wisdom and follow after worldly philosophies that are void of Christ, then your life is going to be shaped and flavored and dominated by an ideology and a philosophy 
that comes from the wisdom of the world and not from Christ. This is simple math. All throughout this sermon, Jesus has been teaching us that his follow, as his followers, we're supposed to seek to emulate our heavenly father, right? We are to love our enemies and do good to those who hate us. Why? Well, Jesus tells us because your father in heaven is kind. We're supposed to be merciful towards those who sin against us and those who are in need. Why? Because your father in heaven is merciful. That's who we're supposed to be like. But if we pick the wrong leaders, if we listen to the wrong teachers, if we're impressed by the wrong heroes, if we follow the wrong examples, we're going to become like them. This statement about becoming like your teacher, this probably would have landed harder on them than it does on us today because our idea of a teacher, the way we often see teachers, is someone who's simply a source of information. Now we have some elementary school students in the room. Some middle schoolers, high schoolers, college students, grad students. A teacher is someone who presents you information that you need, right? And you learn that information from them. And even if you're not a student, we all consume a lot of information. You listen to podcasts, you watch the news, some of you read books, some of you watch videos online, some of you listen to a sermon here, read an article there. We live today in an ocean of information. So information is everywhere. And we often think of a teacher as simply a source of information. But in Jesus' day, a student did far more than simply absorb information. And a teacher was far more than just a source of information. A student would have chosen a teacher, a rabbi. And in doing so, they committed to spend massive amounts of time with that teacher to follow them around. They would have been joined at the hip. And they not only listened to the information that they spoke, they learned to follow his ways. They adopted his mindset, his perspective on the world, his frame of reference, his values. They would have followed his example in the way that he lived. To be a disciple is to imitate the way of your teacher. So for the disciples of Jesus, this would have been undeniably a good thing, right? You listen to Jesus' teaching, you spend time with Jesus, you follow Jesus, and you become like Jesus, that's wonderful, but if you follow the wrong teacher, you inevitably, inevitably become like that teacher. So who are the blind guides that we need to be aware of today? I can't give you an exhaustive list because it's an unending list, right? But I do want to offer two categories. This is simple, practical application. I think there's two categories of spiritual blindness that we need to be cautious about, that we should watch out for. Number one, beware of fools. Beware of fools. It's a word we don't use enough today, but it's a very vivid biblical category. If you want to know what that looks like, read the book of Proverbs. You can put together a profile of the fool. Fools are people who think they see perfectly fine, but they're actually blind. And we're to be careful about that. Proverbs 13.20 says, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Be careful around those who are foolish. In 1 Timothy 1.6, Paul tells this young pastor that certain persons, by swerving away from what Timothy's, or Paul's been talking about, love, a good conscience, a sincere faith. He says, certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. 
Did you catch that? There's people out there who desire to be teachers, desire to be guides. They want to be on a platform. They want you to listen to them. But Paul says they don't understand either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. There's kind of a running joke in my family. I have a bunch of brothers. I have a father, a lot of strong men in our family. And it's kind of an ongoing joke. But if you're not sure about something, just say it really confidently and everybody will believe you. (laughs) Sometimes we kind of get away with that, right? You know, the, the check engine light is on. Oh, I know what it is. It's just the, you know, the O2 sensor. Do you really know that? I don't know, but if you say it confidently enough, maybe your wife isn't worried, right? That can happen with Bible teaching too. There are people who make confident assertions. Oh, well, this is what God is really like. This is what Jesus really meant. Well, if you understand what the Bible actually says, they make confident assertions. But Paul says some of these people don't understand what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. That is a kind of foolishness. There may be, they may be well-meaning. They may be sincere. But if they lack true spiritual insight, Jesus says don't trust them. Be careful about the influence that they have on your life. So that's one category of people that we need to be aware of. Beware of fools. But secondly, beware false teachers. Beware false teachers. These are people who distort or even reject the truth of God's word. This is always a threat to God's people in every age. Listen to Romans chapter 16, verse 17. Paul says to the church, I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. We don't want to be those whose hearts are naive and are thereby deceived by people like this, who do not serve the Lord Christ, but actually serve their own appetites. People who do not teach sound doctrine, but cause divisions and create obstacles by teaching what is contrary to what the Bible says. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Sensuality is that experiential part of us that feels and, and desires, and sometimes we are led astray as people appeal to our senses, appeal to our experiences, appeal to our feelings and our emotions and our desires, rather than appealing to the clearly revealed truth of God's word. They secretly bring in, Peter says, destructive heresies. Listen, doctrine isn't just for the pastors. It's not just for the theology professor at the seminary. It's not just for, you know, that weird 25-year-old nerdish guy who likes to stay at home and read doctrinal books, right? No, doctrine is for everyone. We all need to have a sense of theological discernment because there's blind guides. And if you follow them, you will fall into the pit with them. Jude, verse three, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people 
catch this, have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designed for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They have crept in, Jude says, unnoticed, and they deny Christ. Beware of false teachers. There's a spiritual blindness there that is very dangerous. Let me ask you, who are the guides in your life? Who has the place for you of influence? We need to be careful about the blindness that may exist in some people who are out there. The world is loud, and there's a lot of different, even Christian voices that pull at us. You might say, well, how do I evaluate? Because you might have some people on one hand that are naive and they're easily led astray, but there's also another category of Christian that is so paranoid they won't believe anyone or anything unless Jesus personally appears and says it to them, right? There's sort of a paranoia of I've been duped before, I've been led astray before, I know false teaching exists, so I can't trust or believe anybody. Well, how should we evaluate? I think there's two simple um, paradigms that the Bible gives us for evaluating who's trustworthy. And the first is doctrinal. Do they believe the right things? Specifically, do they have the right view of God? Do they have a big view of God? Do they let God describe himself? Or do they try to tell you what they think God is like? Do they have the right view of God? Do they have the right view of scripture? Do they believe scripture is inspired, that it is inerrant, that it is the highest authority? Do they believe, and here's a big one, that the scripture is sufficient, that it's actually enough, that we don't need the Bible and? Do they have the right view of scripture? Do they give the proper place to the work of Christ in the gospel? Do they preach Christ and him crucified as our only hope? Do they preach the power of the resurrection to free us from sin and from death? Or do they conveniently set Jesus and the message of grace and the work of Christ to the side and kind of move on into other things? Listen, sound doctrine is essential. So we can evaluate people through this lens of biblical doctrine. But there's a second evaluation, and that's character. Do they have a life that reflects Christ and aligns with his word? It's interesting, in Scripture, we're given lists of qualifications, both for deacons and for elders or pastors, and half of the, more than half of the qualifications talk about their character. It's, it's understood that these men, these teachers, are to be a known quantity, that you've observed their life, you know how they lead their family, you know how they interact with others, you know about their self-control and how they engage with people in the world. Right here in this very sermon of Jesus, we could find a number of clear examples of the right kind of character. Do these people follow and embrace the kingdom perspective of Jesus? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Or are they like the rich who feel no need for Christ? Do they have a sense of humility and neediness towards God? Do they demonstrate the spiritual humility of true follower of Christ? Do they manifest the love and the generosity, the forgiveness, the mercy that Jesus calls for? And if not, the question is why? Do they think they know better than Jesus? Do they think they have a better way of living than what Christ prescribes for us? So we can evaluate them along the lines of both doctrine and character. 
Jesus says, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. So find a teacher that is following Christ, so that as they become more like Christ, you also are becoming more like Christ. You see, the flip side of this warning is also an invitation. Don't follow the blind guides. You'll be like them and fall into a pit. But here's the good news. In following Jesus, you become like him. And rather than leading us into destruction, Jesus leads us into eternal life. In John 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This fits perfectly with this metaphor of seeing. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. You won't be blind. Jesus says you will have the light of life. And what's the result of following Jesus, walking with Jesus, believing in the promises of Jesus? 1 John 3, 2 says, when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So the first admonition on the importance of seeing is this caution. Beware of spiritual blindness in others. And it would be really convenient to stop there, close the book, and say, yep, let's watch out for all those people who have all those issues. And we could feel pretty good about ourselves. But Jesus isn't done. Then he tells us to turn the spotlight on ourselves. Verse 41. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. He gives us a caution about spiritual blindness in others. But secondly, Jesus offers us a correction. Beware of spiritual blindness in yourself. Beware of the spiritual blindness that may be present in you. Jesus uses another word picture here, one that is so outrageous, it's almost like cartoonish if you try to picture it, comparing a speck in someone's eye to a log. Now, a speck here, the word for speck just means a small particle. Maybe it's a piece of sawdust, or Jesus was a carpenter. I'm sure he got something in his eye at some point. Maybe it's a piece of straw. For farmers who would have threshed wheat and been throwing these things up in the air, there's a lot blowing around. It's easy to get something in your eye. Now, that doesn't mean that just getting this small thing in your eye is no big deal. I don't know if you've ever had something stuck in your eye for any extended period of time, but that can be very painful. I remember a number of years ago when I was first married, I was remodeling someone's basement over the summer, putting in a drop ceiling, and I got a little little shard of fiberglass from the ceiling tiles stuck into my eye for like two days, two or three days. It was very painful, but it eventually worked its way out. So maybe you can relate. That's not a small thing to have something in your eye. That is a problem. But I can't say that I've ever had a log in my eye. <laughs> I don't know if any of you have had that experience. I know my brother used to work at Home Depot. Maybe a two-by-four slides off the shelf. I don't know. I don't know if this is even possible to literally have a log sticking out of your eye. The word for log here is this large hewn post that would have been used in a home for major structural support. This is something that you put up at the top of the roof or something that holds up your floor. This is serious lumber. Now, a speck is painful, but you can sort of live with it. You know, it's a nuisance, but it'll work its way out eventually. But a log in your eye, that's a full-scale emergency. 
So Jesus asks us a pointed question. Why do you nitpick at your brother, but you ignore your own issues? Why do you see his speck, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Something is wrong with this picture. You're not seeing what you should see. This is a kind of spiritual blindness. But Jesus doesn't just point out that we tend to not notice our own problems. The situation is actually worse. We try to fix other people's problems without fixing our own. And Jesus says this is hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. The person in this scenario claims to be the mature one, claims to be able to really see, claims to have wisdom and be in a position to help you with your problems, yet he is blind to his own faults. That's the issue. Why do we do this? Why is it that it is so easy for us to try to nitpick at the speck in someone else's eye and ignore the log that's hanging out of our own face? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. First of all, no one really sees themselves perfectly. We all have blind spots. A lot of us learned that when we got married. But there's things we don't know about ourselves, things we can't see, even though we may think we see ourselves rightly. But I think sometimes we actually are aware. We do know about our sins. We know about our problems. But we justify them. We make excuses. We minimize them. Maybe this language sounds familiar. Well, that's just how I grew up. Well, that's just my personality. Or I'm just tired. Or the really childish one that we tend to still use as adults. He hit me first. Right? We justify and excuse and minimize our sins. The list is endless. We could go on and on because we are professionals at making excuses and minimizing our own sin. I think another reason why it's so easy for us to do this is that sometimes we're just more bothered by someone else's sin than we are bothered by our own sin. We point out the speck not because we love that person, not because we desire to help them, but because their sin makes our life difficult. Hey, that speck in your eye really bothers me. It shows that what we really care about is comfort, my own comfort. It's not that we care about the holiness or, or the blessing that the other person is going to experience. I point out your sins because your sins make my life uncomfortable. But on the flip side, I don't deal with my sins because dealing with my sins would make my life uncomfortable. The whole point becomes our own comfort. Jesus says this is nothing less than spiritual blindness in us. And he urges us to turn the spotlight on ourselves. Yes, we are to see others rightly, but we also have to see ourselves rightly. We have to honestly assess our own failures. Evaluate our own heart. Evaluate our own conduct. And deal with our own problems before we attempt to help others with theirs. Because a self-righteous person, a proud person... Trying to minister to others is as ridiculous as walking around with a log hanging out of your own eye. But I want to clarify, this does not mean, as some would have it, because some people, again, will love this verse. They'll quote it. This does not mean that we should never point out sin or failure or foolishness in someone else's life. Look closely at the instruction Jesus gives. He says, first, this is at the second half of verse 42, take the log out of your own eye, and then 
you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Jesus says, deal with your own issues first, and then you're in a position to help. Then you're in a position to help. I love that little word, help. It's only once we're willing to look in the mirror and understand God's word, apply it to our own lives, confess our own sin, lay aside the weights and the sins that so easily beset us, like Hebrew says, then we're able to see clearly. And then we're in a position to offer real help to that person. And that's what it is. If, if you're going to help someone else pull the speck out of their eye, that's not your chance to get your frustrations off of your chest. That's not what that is. It's not your chance to give them a piece of your mind and make sure they understand just how badly you were hurt or just how greatly you were inconvenienced or just how deeply you were offended. That's not the goal. The goal is to help. Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Jesus is not teaching us you should never pull the speck out of somebody's eye. He's saying deal with your issues, but then you're in a position to help. And it needs to be done the right way. To quote Jude once again in verse 22, it says, Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. We have a ministry to other people. James 5.19 says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is a great way to describe our approach to other people. Rather than condemn them, rather than judge them, rather than be apathetic towards them, rather than withdraw from them, we are to help to minister to them. And Jesus doesn't say, also, that only people who have never had a log in their eye can go help. In fact, sometimes it's those of us that have had to pull some stuff out of our own eye that might be the best ones to help. We've gone through the process. We've experienced the pain of conviction. We've experienced the shame that sin brings. We've gone through that painful process of repentance and we've experienced the comfort of the gospel. We've enjoyed the forgiveness of our Savior. We've learned to walk in, in a new direction and experience victory over that sin. Sometimes those of us that used to have a log are in a great position to help someone who has a speck in their eye. I know we have a lot of visitors here today, which is great. I love seeing new faces in our church, but I'd like to talk to our members and regulars, just for a minute, have a little bit of a family conversation. There ought to be a culture of this kind of ministry in our church, a church that is healthy, a church that truly understands and believes and obeys scripture, will be a church that has a culture, get this, of both giving and receiving this kind of help. Giving and receiving this kind of help. Brother, let me help you get that out of your eye. If we are genuine disciples of Jesus Christ, then we should be a people collectively who are marked by repentance and marked by a right way of seeing ourselves and a right way of seeing others. 
which means we must be a church where sin is gently confronted and where sin is quickly confessed, where we both seek and offer help, where we both give and receive this kind of ministry. Some of the people in our church are honestly great models of this. And some of us aren't very good at it. So let me ask you, what's keeping you from participating in the life of the body this way? Maybe you need to get the log out of your eye first. Maybe you need to change the way you approach other people, to come alongside them and say, brother, let me help you. Maybe you need to let someone in. Let them shine that little flashlight in your eyeball for a second. Let them help remove that speck. Christ calls us to self-awareness, to a proper introspection, to a necessary evaluation of our own lives. Then we're able to not only receive help, but also give it. Jesus makes it clear that it matters that we see. It matters that we see rightly. Faithfully following Jesus requires that we see Spiritual blindness at times in the people around us. We should be cautious. But it also means we need to see ourselves rightly, to honestly assess ourselves in the light of Scripture, to sit underneath the diagnosis and the prescription that comes from God's Word. So, do you see others rightly? Do you see yourself rightly? If you recognize in yourself today that you don't always see as you should, What's the solution? Well, the only way to truly see is to draw near to Jesus Christ, to fix your eyes on him. The sight that we need is ultimately found in the grace of the gospel. This sight is actually a gift. It's something that God gives us through Jesus Christ. Remember a few pages back in Luke chapter 4, Jesus was preaching from Isaiah. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. Jesus is the eye doctor. He's the one we need to go see. And it is only in seeing him, it is only in drawing near to Christ that we receive his healing touch. We receive the truth and the light that he provides and we begin to see. I love Psalm 36, 9. It says, with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. So if his teaching has landed on your heart today, you desire to see, and you desire to see more clearly, then draw near to Christ, confess your sin, receive his grace, and ask him to open your eyes, to behold wondrous things from his law. Ask him to grant you sight. Ask him to give you clearer sight. Ask him to give you wisdom and discernment. Ask him to help you to identify the errors around you and ask him to help you see the errors within you. Because only then will we see ourselves and see the world as God sees it, as it actually is. Would you bow and pray with me? Lord, as we think about the importance of seeing, we are mindful of that truth that really blindness in sight refers to those who are lost, those who don't know you, and those who've been born again and given spiritual sight. 
we acknowledge that there is no seeing apart from salvation through faith in the gospel. But Lord, even as those who do see, we recognize that sometimes our sight is a little bit out of focus. Sometimes our sight has some blind spots. Sometimes we see what we want to see. We conveniently ignore the things we don't see. Sometimes there's, there's things we need help with. And so God, I ask that you would grow us today, that you would make us mindful of the importance of seeing, that we would draw near to Christ, and that you would give us spiritual insight into the world and into ourselves. I pray that our church would be a church that is marked by humility and repentance, a quickness to acknowledge our own sin and confess it before you, a quickness to seek forgiveness from one another. I pray that we would also be a church that is eager to receive that kind of ministry, that we would be open to when people come and point out our sins, that we would be quick to say, yes, you are right, that is sin, to seek forgiveness from you and to seek forgiveness from our brothers and sisters as well. I pray that as we grow in this gospel-driven humility, that you'd be glorified, that this church would honor you. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.